Let me pray, and then we're going to uh, look into God's Word this morning. So Jesus, say it every week, or say it most of the weeks, we believe in the Holy Spirit, and we believe that He alone is the one who can uh, awaken our eyes and awaken our hearts so we can see and hear what you want us to hear, because we want to be people who learn to listen consistently to the Holy Spirit and learn to consistently listen to you through your word, which the Holy Spirit then brings life to, so we get it, we see it. And now we want your grace so we can do it. Let me ask all in Christ's name, amen. So the word for the day is overflowing, all right? Say that word with me, one, two, three, overflowing, all right? The trash can be overflowing, right? Uh, Sometimes a building can be filled to overflowing. Uh, Sometimes your toilet can be overflowing. Anybody recently, all right, overflowing. Uh, Sink can be overflowing. A river can be overflowing, overflowing its banks. Animal shelters can be full to overflowing. Sometimes sewer systems, in our case, the, uh, what's ours called? Septic can be overflowing, which we've had before. Kathy can tell right away because she can smell it before I can see it, and then I still deny it. But things can be overflowing. Things can be overflowing. And that really, what overflowing means is it's beyond full. It's over the edges. And usually when things are overflowing, it's unplanned, unexpected, and often inconvenient when things are overflowing. Now, that word can be applied to people. I can say, uh, my heart is filled to overflowing with gratitude. Or my heart is filled to overflowing with love for my wife and kids or for my dog, right? Or my heart is filled to overflowing with joy. So things can be overflowing, trash, toilets, septic tanks, buildings. But also we often talk about relationally, my heart is filled to overflowing. And it's usually positive things. So when it's relational, when something about a person is overflowing relationally, more often than not, it has a relational impact that's really positive. You know, if I'm overflowing with joy or overflowing with gratitude or overflowing, when I've been, there's times I feel I'm overflowing with gratitude or joy, I, I'm different around people because I'm, there's something that's coming out of me, all right? So overflowing has a lot of different contexts, but I want to look at how, how that when somebody is overflowing with something, the impact that has on us relationally, and of course today we're going to look at how God describes himself as being overflowing with something, and how, that, how we benefit from that in, in tremendous ways. So, you know, we're not, but again, even then, overflowing is it's beyond full. When, when God is overflowing with something, over the edges, he, often we experience the overflowing nature of God in some ways. It's unplanned, unexpected, um, but it has impact, right? So that's the word for the day. So I've been doing a series called uh, Want More, challenging us all, myself included, to want more of God. Like Paul says, I, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And this is a guy that we would probably have already said was a nine on the 10 scale of knowing God, but he's like, I want more. I want no, no more. And um, that has to be something that God really stirs up in us. But we have to be open and maybe even asking God to stir that up in us. So this started out of kind of a series I started back in November on revival. I'll just define revival as a time when this God manifests himself to a certain time, at a certain time in a certain place with certain people. And um, how much that's a hunger I have, and I, want, I, I think some of you have as well. And I talked a couple weeks ago about, uh, there was a 
revival going on at Asbury College in Wilmore, Kentucky. It lasted a few weeks where people would say, my wife and my daughter included, who went down there for a day, would say there's a palpable sense of the Holy Spirit there. There was something going on that transcended natural. And uh, God's people were not just blessed, but I, there was repentance and confession. Because any revival, there's always going to be repentance and confession. All right, and then this last week, and these connect for me in my head. Anybody seen the movie Jesus Revolution yet? All right, it's in the movie theaters. Kelsey Grammer, Frazier, um, plays Pastor Chuck Smith, real-life person. The whole, it's, a, it's a true story, the whole story. Real-life pastor in Southern California whose church was actually smaller than ours, and it was just kind of a dead feeling, and da 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 And then the hippies started showing up. So it's really the... The, the, it's, it's the origin of kind of the Jesus people movement. But, um, and it's pretty, it, for me, it ties to revival because people that were told or started exploding in their life, spirit of the reach of God's love, all of a sudden just things just started exploding in their life spiritually. The church became like from 30 people to 1,000 people in a matter of probably weeks or months. But it was more about when revival happens people who are outside of the family of God become insiders. And in that case, they had bare feet, bell-bottoms. Who, who wore bell-bottom jeans at any time in their life? Thank you very much, all right? Bell-bottom jeans, bare feet, and they stunk. Right? They didn't think, you know, they were the flower people. And, but the movie, to me, more, again, stirred that desire of, okay, God, there are times in history, whether it's Asbury Revival or the Great Awakening in the American history or Shantung revival in China, or the Jesus people, you could call that a revival, where God does something, and some kind of catalyst, something happens, where people know this is a unusual manifestation of the power of God, and the people in the church uh, begin to repent and hunger more for God, but people outside the church are drawn to Jesus and people that you know and I know, whether it's your neighbors or friends or coworkers, that you think, wow, they would never, they seem so far from God. All of a sudden, they become people who hunger for God and want to know more. So I'm, that's kind of where a lot of this, not kind of, it is, where a lot of this stems from. Um, and it's, it's always lately, and I think it will be for a while, my passion for God, what, could you stir something up in all of us? Um, and it's interesting, just there's a song I've been listening to. There's two songs. Well, I listen to more than two songs, but one of them talked, talked about revival. It's a song I play before the service. Uh, if you're ever here on time, you hear it, but most of you don't hear it. But, but one of the, in one of the songs, the musician was saying, let's pray for revival for our nation and for our cities. And I get that, but I'd say, no, let's pray for revival for our churches and our homes. Because we, when it's nation and city, we're kind of saying they need revival. Our nation needs revival. Our, no, it's like our, pray for our churches and our homes. We need revival, right? That's really what we need revival for. So that's one. And the other song that uh, actually was sung at the revival in Asbury recently, there's a part of the chorus that quotes from Scripture, and it's um, being throned upon the praises of a thousand generations. Because Scripture says that God is enthroned on the praises of his people. So there's this song that I've probably played this song, literally, no joke, probably a hundred times in the last two weeks. And it goes, you know, be enthroned upon the praises of a thousand generations, you are worthy. So it's a sense of, it's not just this college generation that can have revival. There's, 
thousands of generations of people now throughout history and around the world, and Jesus is enthroned on their praises. So when we were singing that to Jesus earlier on, um, he takes his throne. The scripture tells us he's enthroned on our praises. He becomes the king, and we have a part of that going on. So so anyway, I just wanted to kind of... uh, I want to talk about that a little bit. So, I mean, this series on revival recently, I've been talking about Moses, children of Israel. They left it. They left Egypt. Egypt's always over here. I'm sorry about putting the cows in Egypt all the time, but Egypt's over here. God says, "I'm going to set my people free." He calls Moses to lead them out. Ten plagues. God is patient with Pharaoh. Pharaoh still won't let him go. Then God eventually, the last plague is so horrible they all let him go. Children of Israel, hundreds of thousands of them at least, take off from Egypt by foot to go to the Promised Land, modern day Israel, have to cross the Red Sea. Most people know that story. It's a kind of a cultural story now that they cross the Red Sea, God parts the waters, Pharaoh tries to catch them, God closes the waters, all of Pharaoh's army is destroyed. So they see great and mighty things that God has done for them. Then they're in the wilderness, they get impatient with God. We can be impatient with God, even though we've seen great things in our lives. A lot of you would have stories about times you saw God in your life, and all of a sudden, now you're impatient because he's not doing it now. And then they go to the next slide here. They have, I say, God reveals glory to Moses, but in the bottom, I always have, I'm going to have this golden calf, because there was always this sense of, we want more. We want God to be under our control. A golden calf uh, represented for them as it does for us, um, usually something related to money, sex, and power. I want more of that. I want more of this. It's something that we want to be under our control that we think is going to make our life what we want it to be. And God is angry. It's the word the Bible talks about. He's angry. Um, The people repent. Finally, some of them do. And then God tells Moses, okay, you guys keep going to promised land. I'm not going with you. And God wasn't being punitive or just snarky or anything. He was just being God. He said, because I, I wouldn't wait you, I, I, I'd probably kill people. I killed them. And again, it's because God, and I said, talked about it last week about the anger of God and how that, I think we get it because we are all angry. Anger is the emotion you feel when something is blocking what you want. And what God wants is he wants us to be fully alive, awake, and free. And if we choose to do things that block that, that makes God angry. Not because he's offended, because he knows it's not going to lead us to what we think we're going to get. So, so Moses then says, well, God, if you're, we're not going to, I don't want to go unless you go with us. And God's like, okay, I'll go with you then. And then Moses, in this kind of this conversation, he says, okay, God, one more request. And God's like, okay, what is it? He goes, I want, I want to see your glory. Show me your glory. It's a bold prayer. It's a prayer. Go to the next slide. It's a bold, because what he's saying is, I, this, is gonna, this journey I'm leading your people on, I'm going to need more than just good doctrine. I need something. I need to have some experience of you, God, because I want to know that you're real, supernatural, and powerful. I know that because I've seen it, but I need, I need to see you. I mean, it's, again, he wanted more. And there's nothing wrong in asking for that. I want, I want more of God in my life. I want more of my experience with God. So he says, show me your glory. And God's like, okay, I will. But you can't see my front side because nobody can see me and live. But you can see my backside. And it's kind of one of those things that's hard to figure out how Hollywood would ever try to portray this because I don't know what it was like. So he puts Moses 
And he says, I, I will. And then God says, and I'm going to have all my goodness pass before you. Because God's first definition of himself is goodness. All right, he's goodness. All right. All my goodness is going to pass before you. I'm going to have you in a cleft in a rock. Then after I pass, I'll put my hand down and you'll see me. And I will, I said, I will pat, my goodness will pass before you and I will proclaim my name to you. It's kind of like, like somebody saying, I'm going to, I'm going to come, you're going to experience me, but I'm going to tell you what my name is. Seems a little odd, but really what God's saying is I'm going to tell you who I really am and how I define myself. Because we all define ourselves certain ways and we have all definitions of God that may not be exactly how God defines himself. So it's really important for us to see that is God define himself. So God says, I'm going to pass behind you. And then it says, the Lord came down and then he started shouting. Go to the next slide because this is what he, this is God. He said, I'm going to pass by you and proclaim myself to you. The Bible tells us he's shouting, or at least speaking loudly. But again, I, we don't know how that, what that looked like, felt like, heard like. And this is what he says as he passes by. And we're going to read this together in a second. But I want you to realize, so this, how God defines himself, these phrases appear over and over and over and over in Scripture because people realize if that's who God says he is, we will, we will anchor ourselves in that. We're not going to try to make God anything but this because we know that's how he says he is, all right? So actually, read this out loud with me, the whole thing. So this is God. He said, I'm going to shout out who I am. So start off, here, here we go. Yahweh the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. That's what he says when he passes by. And that latter part, we'll deal with that probably in a few weeks, so sometimes that can throw people off, like, I'm not going to excuse the seal to him and lay my you know. My parents and grandparents' sins are laid on me. What? But again, this is God. This is his, if I can call it, this is God's elevator speech about who he is. Boom, this is me. A few weeks ago, so go to the next slide. So a few, I'm fo- focusing on this. So a few weeks ago, I did compassionate and gracious, that God is compassionate, and that's more just than just lovey-dovey. It's like a mother's love for a child. It's like he's moved for us. He's moved for us in our brokenness. He's moved for us in our insecurity and our vulnerabilities. And we also talked about he's gracious, which means God does things for us because he takes delight in us. He's not like, okay, I'll let you have it. He, he chooses to show us mercy and grace in his motivations because he delights in us. Like you might finally give your child something they want, not because you're exasperated, but because you love them. All right, so it's not, God's not exasperated grace. It's I love you, Grace. And then last week we talked about, you can't really see it as much here, but we talked about God being slow to anger. And we talked about what that meant, that he's incredibly, incredibly patient with us. And the book of Romans even says, don't you know that God's patience is meant to lead you to repentance? His kindness is patience. So again, this is how God defines himself. So this week we're focusing on, there's the word overflowing. So God then says, I'm also overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness. We're going to talk about those two words, loyal love and faithfulness. So what does that mean about God? How, does that, how do we relate to that God? All right, so 
First of all, loyal love. Well, first of all, overflowing. Like I said, it's over the limits. It's over the boundaries. And somebody who's overflowing with gratitude, love, or whatever for us usually has a almost a shocking effect on us because it's like, wow, that's more than what I would expect from a person. So when God says, I'm overflowing with this, the word can also mean abundantly, like flowing over much, many, great. He says, I'm, when it comes to loyal love, that's, he said, I'm overflowing with that. So loyal love, and some of the some translations talk about his steadfast love. Um, it's, it's basically a loyalty that's motivated by deep personal care. I will, I will love you no matter what. Um, some, diff, some translations will say loving kindness. Some say steadfast love. Some say faithful love. All right. But here's, here's kind of what it's, it's a loyal love no matter what you or I do. Example. In the Old Testament, Jacob. So Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. All right, then Jacob ended up having all these 12 sons, and Israel started, blah, 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 then they're stuck in Egypt, right? Jacob, his name also means deceiver. Why? Because he was the younger of two brothers, but he connived with his mother to get his inheritance from his dad. It was the blessing. Uh, the birthright is also called. So he kind of sneakily got his brother's inheritance Instead of Esau getting it, the oldest, Jacob got it. So he's a deceiver. He ends up going, having to live with his uncle. He married his uncle's, uh, married his cousin Leah. He married his cousin Rachel. Multiple marriages were different in the Old Testament. That's a, whole, that's a sermon for a whole other time probably. But, so, but he also, then his father-in-law is Laban. But then when he finally leaves, he leaves under the cover of darkness and deceives his father-in-law taking his father-in-law's two daughters with him and all his grandkids. So Jacob's a deceiving person. He's not the kind of person you would trust in a business deal. You may not even trust him in a friendship, all right? But he decides he's got to go back, and this is back, we're still on loyal love. He's got to go back. He wants to go back and reconcile with Esau. And he, uh, Last he's heard, Esau wants to kill him. Stole the inheritance, all right? So he, on his way back, he has an encounter with God. And God tells him, Esau's not going to kill you. He's not going to. So go back and reconcile. And I'm, I'm still going to bless you, just like my promise to Abraham was to bless him and to his son Isaac. And you stole the blessing, so now you get this blessing. I'm gonna, the world's going to be changed because I'm going to bless you, Jacob. So, what is, so Jacob knows he's a deceiver. He knows his checkered history. So what does he say to God? I'm not worthy of all the loyal love you've given me. I'm not worthy of all the unfailing love you've given me. I'm not worthy of the steadfast love. In other words, I know you're loving me in a way that I know I have not earned. As a matter of fact, I've disearned all of that, but you still love me. That's in the Hebrew word, you may have seen it written in English. It's usually written H-E-S-E-D, but it's pronounced chesed. You know, it's loyal love. It's, and, and that's one of the words that's used most often about God in the Bible. He is known for this incredible, steadfast, loyal, unwavering love for his, his people. So then another time in the book of... When, so they're on their way to the promised land. So now I'm back to Moses. And the people are complaining to Moses. We don't have water. We don't have food. 
wah, wah, wah. I mean, we all do that, right? But they were doing it, and God was getting upset. He said, I'm, I'm going to start over, Moses. I'm going I'm to strike these people dead. I'm going to start over. And then what does Moses do? He appeals to God in his prayer. He reminds God, in keeping with your magnificent, loyal love, don't do that, God. So he appeals. He said, pardon these people. Pardon their sins. Because you, God, you already told us you had this magnificent, loyal, steadfast love for your people. I mean, that, that could be a way that even you or I pray for somebody you know that may be far from God or maybe used to walk with God. Your prayer for them might be, God, could you remember your loyal love toward them? Don't give up on them. That's kind of what, so the loyal love that God says, that, that's how God defines himself. I, I'm, I'm, I'm overflowing with that. And then Psalm 23, the, you know, Lord is my shepherd song. Um, the last verse, surely your goodness and loving kindness, your loyal love will pursue me all the days of my life. So the King, King David saying, you're coming after me with that kind of love. I don't get it. All right? So it's, it's a love that most of us may have experienced from God, but it's a love he has for each one of us. Um, one of my favorite, what did I do with that? So this is the book, Les Miserables, all right? I will say up front, I did not read the whole thing. I stopped at about page 200. It's got 1,200 and like 38 pages. Anybody ever read the whole thing? If you have, blessings on you. I, I knew nobody would. I, I think there's a, a bridge version of this same story. But, so if you've gone to see the musical, it's not this long, of course, right? But... Uh, I did read up to this part, at least up to this part. There's a part that I love in this book that it totally illustrates the loyal love, the hesed of God. But in this case, it's through his people because we're called to show that to people, right? So the, the, char- the main character in here is a guy named Jean Valjean. Prisoner, he was a prisoner over a trivial thing and then became really hardened, bitter toward life. Hardened, bitter, angry at God, right? Finally gets out of prison for a menial Stole a loaf of bread and he was in prison, hard labor for, I don't know, 20 years or something like that. Finally gets out of prison, but he can't get a job because when he, in those days in France, in the middle of 1800s, this is not a true story, but it's probably based on reality from Victor Hugo, the author. Um, you had a, basically your, your passport, your equivalent of driver's license, was coated yellow so everybody knew you were a convict. Nobody would give him a job. So his life was, he just got more angry and bitter toward God. He ends up at a, at a Catholic priest's house, the Bishop of Digny in France. Ends up at that house overnight because the bishop has exuding the loyal love of God toward this person. Says, oh, you can stay here. Well, what is, shows all this mercy and grace. What does Jean Valjean do in the night? He fills a knapsack full of fine silver and candlesticks from the priest's house. And then actually physically accost the priests when the priest found out and he runs away he didn't actually he didn't take the candle so he runs away with all the silver he, he steals from the bishop when he's caught by the police he's brought back to the bishop of Digny, and they said this guy said that you gave you gave him all this silverware and the bishop of Digny says that's right i did and he said and furthermore jean valjean you forgot the candlesticks those are worth a lot of money. Why didn't you take the candlesticks? And uh, 
in the movie, the first movie version was played by Liam Neeson. If you have a chance ever to watch just that scene, Liam Neeson, the expression on his face when he's encountered by somebody who's showing him loyal love. His face just kind of, he's like, well, why are you doing this? I mean, he could have been thrown back into prison the rest of his life if the priest just said, thief. He said, no, no, I, I gave you that, I gave him that silver. You can, un, you can take his handcuffs off. And as a matter of fact, you, didn't, you forgot the candlesticks. And this is, this is parts of the book I have underlined in red, but I had to print it out on a bigger paper because the, the font's too small in the book, right? So it said when, when, when the priest said that to him, it said he was motionless and on the verge of collapse because he was experiencing something he didn't understand, this loyal love of this priest, the loyal love of God through this priest. It said he was motionless on the surge collapse. It was a new and strange sensation because it was this love that... I, it was, he felt a strange tenderness. He's running away at this time, too. And the author says he was exhausted. He was distraught. He felt in turmoil because he didn't know what just happened to him. The, 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 I love this line in the book. The priest's forgiveness was the most formidable assault he had ever sustained. Like the, the forgiveness of the priest felt like an assault to him because he knew something wasn't right. He knew it was unjust, but he was experiencing the loyal love of God through the Bishop of Digny. He said, even, he said he felt like a drunken man. He was so disoriented because somebody showed him loyal love overflowing. So that, that's the love of God toward us. And maybe you've been through some dark stuff in your life. Maybe you've made choices and have some things in your past you're ashamed of. I'm guessing we all do. And sometimes we're afraid even to bring that up with God. But God, like the Bishop of Digny, but say, no, but I, I still love you. I, I'm going to bless you. So, you know, we don't, and, and just, John Valjean didn't want to accept it because he didn't feel just to him. But God is more than just. Right? A friend of mine told me that years ago. God is more than just. He's loving. We tend to want God to be less fair. It's not fair. No, God is more than just toward you. He's loving toward you. If he was just toward us, we'd be in a really bad situation. But just like Jean Valjean experienced from the Bishop of Digny, it's like, no, he's, God's more than just. He's loving. So, I don't, again, I don't know all your past. I don't know all your bad list or good list or naughty and nice list, but there's nothing that you've done that God would say, I'm done with you. No, he's loyal love. He's overflowing with that toward you. So don't ever hold that back from God. So he's overflowing with loyal love. He's also overflowing with faithfulness. So faithfulness, the word actually, uh, it's, a, it's a Hebrew word, and I'm not, it's not about language, but it's, for this reason it's good to know. It's a Hebrew word, it's emet, but it's related to the word we use, amen, like let it be so. So faithfulness is not just, you know, he's faithful, but it means like he's true. God is true. God's saying of himself, I'm overflowing with True. And steadiness. So, example, this word used other parts in the Bible. Um, there's a part where, uh, again, back to the story of Moses, they're fighting the Amalekites, and they're in a valley. And for some reason, Moses knew as long as he held his hands up, his, the Israelite forces would beat the Amalekites. As soon as he got tired and his hands started to fall, the Amalekites started winning. So they're up on a mountain. 
So he had Caleb and Joshua with him, and they understood that they needed. So they actually got Moses to sit down on a stone. They stood on either side of him, and they held his arms left. So his arms, Scripture says, was steady. They were faithful. There's a steadiness about. So God is, so his arms had to be held up steady, just like God is steady, unwavering, unmoving toward us. If, God, if God's promised something, he will do it. If God says, I won't abandon you, he will do it. If God says, I will pour out my flesh on all spirit, he will do it. So that's one. And then, you know, there's another, again, Moses talking to God because the people of rebelling about water or food or whatever in the desert. And God says, and God says, Moses says, don't, don't forget, you're true, you're steady, you promised you would do this for your people. And there's another part where Moses is overwhelmed with all the people he has to deal with and decisions he has made, and then he's told by his father-in-law, find men that are capable and trustworthy and let them make those decisions for you. Capable and trustworthy is the same word as faithful. So God is overwhelming, overflowing with capable. He's capable and trustworthy. You can trust him. You can trust him. And the Bible even says in Isaiah that, that soon after, when in the line of David, King David, soon he will have a descendant who will rule in all mercy and in all faithfulness. In other words, he's true. He's steady. He's not going to change. If he's promised it, it will happen. Right? So God says, I'm, I'm compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, overflowing with loyal love that we don't deserve. And I'm, I am steady. I am true. I'm not moving. I'm not changing. So it's more than just faithful, but it's like it's immovable, steady, trustworthy, incredibly trustworthy. And that's, that's who God is to us. And, and, and then Jesus, jump to the New Testament here. Jesus, John chapter 1. I think it's the next slide. I think I have one of you. So the word became flesh, Jesus. He made his home among us. He was full of, read those two with me, unfailing love and faithfulness. That's what God already said he was overflowing with. I'm overflowing with unfailing, loyal love, and I am overflowing with faithfulness that is true. Some versions will say he's full of grace and truth because it's the same thing. Truth is kind of this uh, immovable faithfulness that God is. Now he says this is Jesus now. Jesus is now full of this, overflowing with this. So when God said I'm full of compassion and grace and slow to anger, Loyal love and faithfulness to Jesus is still to us, all right? He's full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory. Think about Moses' request. I want to see your glory. We've seen the glory of God in his one and only son. So Jesus, who we say we follow, I'm a follower of Jesus, I've said before, I don't, I don't tell anybody anymore I'm a Christian because that doesn't mean a whole lot anymore in our culture. I tell them I'm a follower of Jesus. But if you're a follower of Jesus, then you follow one who has all the attributes of God. He's full of compassion and grace, and he's slow to anger toward you. And this is toward you, toward you, all right? 
and he's full of unfailing love. Undeserved, unfailing love. And he is full of immovable, steady, trustworthy faithfulness toward you. Even though you doubt him at times and I doubt him at times. Even though I think there's things I've done that probably puts me outside of God's reach. Or you think you think there's things you've done that put, him, put yourself outside of God's reach. Um, I had a little bedtime routine for some of our kids when they were younger. I think I stopped it at some point when we had too many kids and I just started forgetting. I don't know. But I used to ask them at nighttime, what can I do to make you stop loving me? And I most remember it with Gretchen because she was our oldest, so I did it both. She, she knew the answer was nothing. Okay, Gretchen, what can I do to make you stop loving me? Nothing. And sometimes I would say, what if you hit your brother Mark? Do I stop loving you? Nothing, Dad, nothing. What if you screamed and wailed and messed up your room? Do I stop loving you? No, Dad, nothing. And I kind of would make extreme examples, like, you know, if you threw your food across the room or whatever. But there's nothing you do that makes you stop God loving you. Nothing. Sometimes we think there's something we've done way in the past, or maybe just last week, that we think that was the limit. God stops there. Nothing. And then because of that, we stop wanting to, we stop wanting to be around God, because I don't want to be around somebody who's angry with me, but he's slow to anger. So if there's nothing that makes God stop loving you, be transparent in front of him. Don't, fe- don't let those things become the barriers to pursuing the slow to anger, gracious, compassionate, faithful, loyal, loving God. Because that's what we want to do. Satan knows that if he can get us thinking about guilt, well, I, I remember what I did 10 years ago. I just said, God could never forgive me of that. I had somebody tell me one time, I invited him to church one time. This is when I worked somewhere else. And he said, you don't understand that. If I came into your building, I know what my life's been like. I'm afraid the building would collapse around me because I've done such horrible things. I said, well, that's, that's, not, what, that's not what God is like, right? It's not what he's like. So uh, let's pray. So God, I will pray for us, all of us individually, that you would show us your glory And in doing so, I'm not asking just for an emotional experience. I'm asking that we would have an experience of your loyal love toward us and of your steady faithfulness toward us in ways that maybe each one of us needs something different from you. We just need to know that. Maybe there's things in our past we're ashamed of, and we need to know your loyal love covers that, and we can bring it to you. Or maybe we're doubting whether you really have promised supernatural peace and joy and whether you have promised you won't leave us and we need to experience your stead, steady always trustworthy faithfulness so God I pray that people myself included we would experience you in ways that you know we need we don't want to be simply Christians because we hold correct doctrine Pharisees did that and look where it led them we want to be followers of Jesus because we experience you, God, your person, your grace, your glory through Jesus, who was full of steadfast love toward us and full of steady faithfulness toward us. So, God, I just, I just pray that we would want more of that, God, because that's who you are. We've maybe crafted you in different images, and maybe in our minds you're angry at us, you're apathetic, or you don't care, but who would want more of that, God? We want more of the God that you said you were when you told Moses who you were. 
that the Bible repeats over and over. So we want to know you. We want to know your son, Jesus. And um, there's no one else, period, that even is worth following or becoming friends with in terms of a deity. There's no one else. There's no other world religion that talks about a God this way. Not even close. So um, we love you, and we thank you for your... Uh, we thank you, God, for who you are to us. We ask this on your name. Amen.